Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. This episode brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. We talk a lot about five-star matches here on my podcast, but what we should be talking about are five-star reviews for save with Conrad.com. Just ask James over in Fort Worth, Texas. He says, we just closed a refinance with first family mortgage and we couldn't have been more pleased with the experience. Every team member we worked with, every single person from quote to close moved at lightning speed. We were never waiting on them. Communication from Derek's team was quick, thorough, and accurate. There was never a time where we didn't know where we were in the process. They were our second call this time. They'll be our first call from now on. Folks, we're going to save you some money and we're going to do a good job doing it. We're licensed in more than 40 states. We're a bunch of wrestling fans. You saw him reference Derek here on my team. That's my cousin. It really is First Family Mortgage. There's a chance you might even talk to my dad, Larry. That's right. My dad's at First Family Mortgage. We want to take care of you. We want our family to help your family save a bunch of cash. We're routinely helping listeners just like you save 60, 70, 80, 90, even $100,000 worth of unnecessary interest. Now, sure, you can plot along through life and say, well, I'm not having trouble making my payments. Hey, man, it ain't about that. It's about keeping more of your own money. You know how much your house payment is. Multiply it by 360. That's how many payments you'll make on a 30-year loan. And that big, scary number you're looking at, well, that's what's called the total of payments. That's what you're actually paying for your house. And you know that's too much. Let me run the numbers for you right now at no cost, no obligation. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. But I'm telling you, if you're in a 30-year loan, now is the time. Get out of debt faster, do it with cheaper monthly payments, and do it at SaveWithConrad.com. That's NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? What are you waiting for? SaveWithConrad.com.
love talking about our friend, Steven singer. And I'll tell you the competition must really hate this guy. He just makes the experience of buying a diamond better and better. And he makes it fun. Steven is the very first to offer each and every customer the perfect price. That's right. The perfect price. Have you ever wondered if you're getting the best price? Are you uncomfortable negotiating? Well, head to Steven singer jewelers and you're guaranteed to get the perfect price. You'll never pay more than the guy sitting next to you. Here's a little insider tip. Most jewelers mark their merchandise way up just to mark it down to make you feel like you're getting a deal. The guy next to you may be paying less. Do you want the most important purchase of your life to be based on your negotiating skills? It's not the case at Steven singer because at Steven singer jewelers, you're guaranteed to get the perfect price all day, every day, 365 days a year. That's why we trust Steven singer. He makes the experience of buying a diamond so easy. So check out Steven singer jewelers at the other corner of eighth and walnut in Philly or online at I hate Steven singer.com. Steven singer jewelers, one place, one price. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am doing well, Conrad. Feeling blessed. Lots of good stuff going on. Full of energy. Can't wait to do this podcast. All things are go at Bischoff Rocket Center. (laughs) Man, I'm excited to be here with you today. We're going to be talking about one of your very favorite topics Mr. Vergania, but before we get there, I want to give everybody a peek of what we're going to be covering in the month of March. We're going to get next week kicked off in style. We're going to go back and watch the final show from the Omni. It was that famous nitro where Roddy Piper had tryouts and well, it was marketed as a show as being the nitro. You'll never forget. And unfortunately, many of us still haven't one of the more missteps <laughs> episodes of the era. We'll be back on March 8th, covering one of our most requested topics, Victory Road 2011. Yes, this is that TNA show. On March 15th, we'll cover the very last WCW pay-per-view. It'll be all about greed. On March 22nd, we're going to do a profile on your old pal, Kurt Hennig. And of course, on March 29th, we're going to talk about the Big Bang. Lots of great stuff coming your way, but we saw over the weekend, or at least I did, so many tweets about Eric fires back. I think people think this may actually be your best episode yet. What's the feedback you've gotten? The same, you know, I, I just, I'm overwhelmed. I'm grateful, but overwhelmed and, uh, it's fun. You know, those, as you know, Conrad, those shows are a little bit of a challenge for me. It's almost like having to prepare for you know, for a marathon or, or, a, or, or a prize fight or something. I mean, I really have to get my head right in order to do them. 
But more importantly, I have to get my head right after I do them because for about 45 minutes after doing those shows, I literally walk around on, in our proper, on our property just letting my blood pressure kind of get back to normal <laughs> and, you know, getting back to, uh, getting back to where I want to be mentally. But um, they're fun. <laughs> they are fun. As, as I've as responded to Mike Mansuri, you know who Mike Mansuri is? No, nope. Mike Mansuri worked for Kevin Dunn at WWE, just an amazingly talented guy. And he commented on a comment to the Eric fires back. And my response was, I live to enlighten and occasionally shred <laughs> <laughs> that best describes Eric fires back. Well, if you haven't already go check it out, it's over at adfreeshows.com and also at adfreeshows.com. Eric, you've had a few minutes now to check out some of the Jim Crockett interview that I did. I, I think it's probably the definitive Jim Crockett interview. What's your takeaway thus far? It's not only the definitive Jim Crockett interview. I think it's a, a, a definitive because, you know, you did such a great job with Jim Hurd. It's another one of those. When I say definitive, I mean an interview that defines or sets the bar for wrestling related interviews with people that were game changers in this industry, you know, before I came around, uh, it, certainly in the case of, of Crockett, um, these are really, really well done and I'm not just blowing smoke, you know, they're well done, but they're so informative and they allow our family over at adfreeshows.com and anybody else that's privileged to, to see them to gain so much more real insight directly from the principles in, in terms of what the business was and how important, you know, the genesis of this industry going, you know, from the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, into what we see today. You know, when you look at Jim Crockett and the things that happened in the NWA, you know, like I talk about in our podcast, realize as you're watching some of the things that you see today, some of those things, you know, weren't originated in WWE or WCW or AEW. You know, they 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 take you all the way back to some important times in NWA history and Crockett hit history. So, I it, it's if you really love the industry and you really want to know more from an objective perspective, I can't recommend these interviews highly enough. It's pretty fun. Go check it out at adfreeshows.com, especially if you're a longtime wrestling fan or a wrestling fan who wants to learn. But man, if you have been on the journey that Tony Schiavone and I are on as we relive Crockett 86, you just don't want to miss it. It's the Jim Crockett interview and it's at adfreeshows.com. But today we're talking about another legend and I'm so excited that we get to do this. We're paying homage to your old pal, Vern Gagne. And you stated a couple of weeks ago that, you know, if it weren't for Jim Crockett, you never would have went to WCW and never would have went to WWE and never would have met Bruce Pritchard would never be doing this podcast, but man, if it weren't for Vern Gagne, Eric Bischoff probably never would have been in the wrestling business. Would you agree? Uh, there's no debate. There's not even a little bit of discussion <laughs> on that point. It's yeah. Had it not been for Vern Gagne and the opportunity, um, to learn the business, really from the ground up, you know, one of the advantages of going to work for Vern was that I was a young guy. I had no fear. 
Um, I, I, I love the television industry. I never had an opportunity to be in it. So this was my first opportunity to work in such an amazing industry. But working for Vern meant, you know, he, Vern didn't have a lot of money. Vern couldn't afford to have the best of the best on his staff. So I guess that's one of the reasons he hired me because <laughs> um, I was cheap. <laughs> um, but from my perspective, I also had the opportunity to kind of investigate and learn on the job areas of the television business that someone like me without any education or background in television, I would have never gotten those opportunities if it weren't for Vern. I got to learn about television production in my spare time um, in, in the AWA. I got to learn about promotion. I got to learn about advertising. And yes, Dave Meltzer, I got to learn about ratings back in 1987 and demographics and the difference between a ratings and a share and all those things I needed to know to learn about television syndication. So as a result of working for the AWA, I had, while not a deep um, understanding of all the different aspects of the wrestling industry, I had a, an understanding that was better than most people that were in the industry in terms of a broader spectrum of experience and knowledge. So I'm forever grateful to, to Vern Gagne, to Mike Shields. I would have never gotten the job in the AWA had it not been for Mike Shields and him being such an advocate for me. Um, but I'll always always be grateful to Vern Gagne for those opportunities because it affected my, not only my life, but my wife's, my children's, Mine. in some ways, you know, brothers and sisters. So it, it's, it's a very important thing to me. Vern Gagne is our topic today because this Thursday would have been his 95th birthday. Uh, he would gain fame in his home state. We're at Robbinsdale high school. He excelled in football, baseball, and wrestling. He won state championships for wrestling in high school before moving on to the university of Minnesota, where he captured two NCAA titles. Were you aware of Vern Gagne before you moved to Minnesota when I think you were like 14 years old? No, I was not. You know, that was, you know, that was back in the day. <laughs> that was back before, um, really cable television was much of a thing. And I was still, you know, when I lived in Detroit, I, you know, I thought that, you know, the, the, the champion, you know, in the, on big time wrestling out of, of, of CKLW in Windsor, Canada, you know, was the, really was the heavyweight champion of the world until I moved to Pittsburgh. And then all of a sudden Bruno San Martino's the heavyweight champion of the world. Well, what the hell? I didn't even know Bruno San Martino uh, existed because I didn't understand the territory system. Nobody did. And then I moved to Minnesota, and to my surprise, there's another world heavyweight champion by the name of Vern Gagne. So that was my first experience or exposure to Vern. He's uh, going to make quite a name for himself here. You talked about how you met Vern at a high school event in Minnesota. What was Vern like at that meet? Was he intimidating? I mean, did he have an aura around him? Was he pretty approachable? Did you get a chance to talk about the AWA? Take us back to that initial meeting. Yeah, well, it was a very brief meeting. You know, Vern, who is was it, it, such an ardent supporter of amateur wrestling in general, but specifically in the state of Minnesota and almost passionately uh, for the, the high schools and the teams that were a part of the area where Vern grew up in. You know, he grew up in a little town called Corcoran, Minnesota, which is not far from Mound, Minnesota, which is where Vern had his home. 
uh, you know, during the AWA, the peak of the AWA. I think Vern went to Mount High School for a while. And that was just right down the road from the school that I went to high school at, Minnetonka Senior High School. So Vern was a very active supporter. It was called Region 5 back then, um, of the Region 5, you know, athletic programs, but specifically for wrestling. So Vern would show up, you know, at district high school wrestling events or regional events. And I met Vern at a regional event. And, um, you know, he was, you know, he's meeting all the wrestlers and really spending time talking to all of them. I probably spent about two or three minutes talking to Vern. Um, but he was very approachable, you know, even though he was Vern Gagne, the world heavyweight champion, he was such a baby face, number one, as a world heavyweight champion that he didn't have that, you know, intimidating character that maybe a Nick Bockwinkle would have had, for example, or Larry the Axe Hennig would have had, or Baron Von Roschke would have had. So Vern was like the, the ultimate baby face, face of the promotion. But aside from that, he just had such an engaging charismatic personality that, you know, you weren't intimidated at all. You felt like, man, I wish this guy was my big brother or my, my, my uncle, you know, he just had that attraction to him. Hey Conrad, can we take just a quick break? I want to talk about a big surprise that Mrs. B and I got when we got home from uh, traveling over the holidays. We pulled up into the driveway after a three day road trip and there's this big box leaning up against the house. And I'm thinking, what could that possibly be? We get the truck unloaded, I finally get everything squared away, and I decide to go investigate this box. It's a total gem. That's right, a total gem. I knew exactly what it was, but see, I hadn't ordered it. Little did I know, while I was on the road, you had made arrangements for a total gem to be shipped to my house. Now, that's the beginning of the story. I was excited as hell. I brought the box in. I start opening it up. Mrs. B says, hold the phone, easy E, hold the phone. You see, Mrs. B doesn't let me put anything together unless I can assemble it with a hammer or duct tape. That's it. It's the only two tools I'm allowed to have. But the good news is no tools required. I saw it right on the box. So I'm thinking, hey, I could get this up all by myself. I was really excited. So I get it up to the extra room where I was going to use it, pulled it out of the box. It took me about... 20 minutes, maybe 25, to get the Total Gym completely set up and ready to go. And was I excited? So was Mrs. B, by the way. We've both been really missing working out, but with COVID and travel and all the restrictions and limitations, it's not been the easiest thing to do. So we get this Total Gym set up, and we're looking through the various exercises, and I'm thinking, okay, let's just, let's take this for a whirl. I was amazed. The range of motion you can get, the way you can target your muscles, uh, it, you can increase flexibility. You're working your core almost the entire time, regardless of what exercise you're doing. For the most part, there's, I like there's over 85 different set, uh, exercises uh, on the uh, on the total gym, so it's it's just amazing. And uh, we're exploring, we're experimenting every single day. We're really getting a kick out of it and uh, can't say enough great things about it. Whether you're a beginner, whether you're advanced, it's everything you need, man, to get in the best shape of your life, lose some weight, gain some flexibility, and most of all, just feel better about yourself. And I can tell you what, man, my core feels better already. I will admit, I never knew how weak my core was. 
until I got on the total gym. But almost, you know, three, four, five days later, I could feel everything starting to tighten up. So, man, if, if you haven't tried a total gym yet, you need to do it. And the folks over at Total Gym are going to make it really easy for you because right now, Total Gym is offering a 30-day in-home trial on their Total Gym Fit for just $1. I am not kidding you. $1. So what have you got to lose? And no matter which Total Gym you try, our listeners can get an additional 20% whatever discount they currently have running. Just head to TotalGymDirect.com forward slash weeks in order to get this special offer. You've got to go to this URL, TotalGymDirect.com forward slash weeks, and you get an additional 20% off. You're going to love it. Mrs. B loves it. I'm really digging it. And uh, I can't wait to see you next time, Conrad. I'm going to be in the best shape of my life. Talk to me a little bit about how old you were when you met him. I mean, I think you met him when you were in high school. So do you think you're 15, 16, 17? Do you know what year it was? Was it your sophomore or junior or senior year? I think it was my senior year. So I would have been probably 17. So just doing some real quick math. If it's your, cause you graduated when you were 17, right? No, I had just turned 18 at the end of May. And my, I think I graduated June 4th because they I only know that because in 1973 in Minnesota they changed the drinking age from 21 down to 18 on June 1st 1973 <laughs> which meant I got to sneak some beers into high school my senior year <laughs> that is just tremendous I ask because this would have been around the same time that he's running those crazy clinics and camps uh, that turned out greats like Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat and so many others uh, but yeah, you would have been meeting him, uh, when you're a senior in high school at the same time, Ric Flair is, uh, coming up in the AWA. How funny is that? That your arch rival at one point in your wrestling career, you're both rubbing up against Vern at the same time. Yeah. What's it, This is another little tidbit. I may have mentioned this previously on another podcast. I don't remember if I did or not, but this, this fits so perfectly. So the wrestling season, my senior year ended for me at least probably around mid February. You know, I was a on a good day. I was a pretty average wrestler on a really good day. Um, so I think I made it into regions. I made a one a match or two in regions, but I, I was out of it by the state tournament. And shortly after the the high school wrestling season ended, the AAU there was an AAU freestyle wrestling team and an AAU amateur athletic union at the time, Greco Roman wrestling team that was forming. And I love Greco Roman wrestling. One of the reasons I was such an average amateur wrestler in high school, um, was because I had good upper body strength and I liked to use my upper body, but my legs were slow. I hit, I mean, I, you could take me down taking me down was not much more challenging than, you know, taking down a broom in a closet. My legs, I just had dead legs back then. So Greco-Roman wrestling, which is all upper body kind of throws and upper body wrestling, really appealed to me. So I went on the – I joined the AAU Greco-Roman uh, team and the freestyle team. And <clears throat> shortly thereafter – now this is about six weeks after I first met Vern at the regional tournament. Um, I made the team, the Greco team, and we were going to wrestle the AAU freestyle team from Sweden. 
They were coming over to the United States to compete against a bunch of, you know, similar clubs, similar age clubs around the U.S. So we were going to be wrestling Sweden, but because it was a, you know, it was AEU, right? So it was privately funded and donations and such. I thought, man, I wonder if Vern will remember me. I'm going to call him up. Now, this is the first time I ever called Vern. Not directly, but called the office. I'm going to call the, the AWA office and see if they'll let me come on Vern's wrestling show and promote this matchup, Team USA versus Team Sweden, Greco-Roman wrestling, AEU. I'm going to see if Vern will let me come on to promote it and help raise some money to, to help support it. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> and I went over to the uh, the TV studios where Vern was um, producing his show at the time. I think it was called WTCN Channel 11. It was over in Golden Valley, Minnesota. And I went over there with a buddy of mine. And, of course, I got to the, to the studio about eh, maybe three or four hours early. <laughs> I was supposed to be there at 11. I think my buddy and I got to the studio at about – 8.30 in the morning, and we're eating coffee and donuts in a parking lot waiting for people to show up. And sure enough, man, uh, about an hour before, uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, you know, Vern, or excuse me, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel show up. You know, then the Iron Sheik shows up. Then I see Baron Van Roschke getting out of his car. So me and my buddy are sitting in, a, in our car. It was like a 64 Ford Galaxy convertible. And we're sitting in my car eating donuts, drinking coffee, and we're seeing these – People that we've only heretofore seen on television. You know, it's like, oh, my God. It was like we were backstage at a Rolling Stones concert, for crying out loud. It was so cool. You know, Jerry Blackwell, I think, came strolling in. And it was just so much fun. And then, sure enough, I, I went in and I met with uh, Wally Carbo was there. He was the commissioner slash promoter. And then, oh, my God, I'm trying to remember the uh, the announcer. Marty O'Neill. Marty O'Neill. Marty was about 70 at the time. He was maybe four foot eleven, but had that classic old school radio voice. He had bad cataracts, so he wore glasses. It was like talking to a little tiny Ray Charles. And he was the he was the stick man. And sure enough, when it was my time, Wally Carbo, I was sat there, you know, at ringside watching the matches being taped, which was really fun for me being that close. I'd never done that before. And then Wally Carbo, you know, during a commercial break or shutdown, he goes, okay, kid, come on over. And I got to interview with Marty O'Neill on Vern's show. That was the first professional television appearance I ever made. And I wish to God I could find it. <laughs> Well, if you can help us find it, Hey, slide in our DMS, mine are open. I think yours are too, Eric, uh, in the archives of your time in the AWA, you talked about how you were a fan of Ivan Putsky, the crusher, mad dog, Vashon, superstar, Billy Graham, Wahoo McDaniel and dusty Rhodes. Were you not a fan of Vern's wrestling style? Oh, no, I was. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, it was an error by omission on my, my part to not include Vern. I guess in my own mind, you know, Vern was such a huge part of wrestling and he was such an, he was so over. And I mean, not only because of, you know, 
the AWA and being the world heavyweight champion, but Vern was always so active in the community, not with just, just with the amateur wrestling, but with anything that had to do with the university of uh, Minnesota athletic program. Um, he, he was always doing something for the community. So he was not only over because of what he did in, in the AWA, he was over because he was such a legitimate celebrity outside of wrestling in the state of Minnesota. So my assumption and probably the reason for that omission was simply because I just assume everybody was a Vergania fan back at that time. I couldn't imagine anybody not being a Vergania fan. So he's kind of by default at the top of the list. In my opinion, at least let's talk about some of your favorite memories as a kid, uh, of, of being an AWA fan. Whenever I do interviews for other podcasts, they'll inevitably ask, what was your first or your first exposure to wrestling? Who were your favorites? So let me ask you, what was your first, first exposure to the AWA and, and who were your favorites in terms of your favorite matches or moments, things that really made an impression on you? Well, like we just said, you know, my first exposure, of course, was on television when I moved to Minnesota from Pittsburgh uh, in early 1970, I think, or 69. I can't remember. God, it was like a lifetime. It literally was a lifetime ago for some people. Um, But my first exposure was on television. And I think and I had to be really young. I don't remember the year, but I would had to have been before I got my driver's license, which would have happened. I don't know when that happened. Actually, I can't remember that either. But um, because my mom had to drive my little brother and I say little, he's only four years younger than I. But my brother Mark and I went to the very first live event, um, AWA live event, and it was on Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was a big day for you know a live event in many. It was a tradition, and I think it was around the country. Yes, sir. Well. It wasn't just it wasn't just in the Midwest. But again, because I wasn't aware of anything that was going on around the country, um, I thought, man, this is the biggest event, you know, in the country. This is the biggest event of the year because that's the way Vern promoted it. And my brother and I, you know, my mom dropped us off and my brother and I got our tickets and a couple hot dogs and a couple boxes of popcorn and just sat there and had a blast. So that's your first AWA live event is uh, Thanksgiving Probably 1971. Yeah, I think so. That'd be about right. Man, that's so fun to go back and and trace the steps of let's, um, let's talk about Vern Gagne, the performer. You mentioned a minute ago that you thought it was just understood that you were a fan of Vern. What about his style or presentation appealed to you as a young person? Well, I think because he was such a technical wrestler and, and as an amateur wrestler, I, I enjoyed, you know, you, Vern would work, you know, somebody, you know, we see it all the time in professional wrestling today. I don't remember who, what match it was, but I was recently watching a match within the last couple of days and whoever the announcer was, I think it was Tony Schiavone. Actually, it was for a show that you and I were reviewing for a podcast, you know, it was referring to a standing switch. Right. Well, a, a switch in, in, in amateur wrestling is a particular move. You don't usually do it standing, although it can be done in, in the course of an escape. But for the most part, switches happen, you know, when you're both on the ground. But, you know, that's one tiny example of an amateur wrestling move that most young amateur wrestlers would be aware of that Vern was able to integrate in into his professional wrestling technique. And there were a number of those. Um, 
so I think the fact that Vern represented something that I could, as a young kid, amateur wrestler, I could kind of relate to um, in a real way, helped me really enjoy watching Vern in particular wrestle. Now, I'm not sure if I wouldn't have been an amateur wrestler as a young kid, if perhaps I might not have been quite as interested as I was, but because I was, it made Vern's style just so much more relatable to me. I wanted to give my father-in-law the perfect birthday gift. And that's when we knew paintyourlife.com was the place to be. Our family hasn't been able to be together for a while now, but my wife and I found a way to bring us all together safely. Of course, Christmas is in the rearview mirror now, but we loaded up everybody in my family this year. I got my mom a painting of her dad. I got my dad a painting of his mom, and I got my cousins a painting of their dad that they recently lost, three of them together. Uh, That was a tearjerker all around the room. But I even got the wife one of our wedding photos painted and blown up now and, and, and framed beautifully in our dining room. But we knew when it was time for the nature boys birthday, we had to get him a cool gift. So we got him something from painterlife.com. If you've been thinking like I am, Hey man, that's a great idea. A hand painted portrait made from any photo on your phone. You probably had the same first impression I did. That must be very expensive. It's not. Here's the deal, man. If you want to give a truly meaningful gift, you got to try paintyourlife.com. Get a professional hand-painted portrait created from any photo at a truly affordable price. Choose from a team of world-class artists and work with them until every detail is perfect. They have a user-friendly platform that lets you order custom-made hand-painted portraits in less than five minutes. It's a quick and easy process, and you get a hand-painted portrait in just about three weeks. Send any picture yourself, your kids, your family, a special place, a special pet. You can even combine photos into one painting. And I saw a lot of our listeners doing that around Christmas. If you recently lost a grandparent and they never got to meet a new grandchild, you get to reunite them. Oh my gosh. It's magic. It really does make the perfect birthday anniversary or wedding gift. This is something that's meaningful and personal, and it'll be cherished forever. This has been a game changer for my family. Uh, now my cousin who I just mentioned, I gave one of these presents to for Christmas. He's getting one for his girlfriend. Recently lost her dad. Paintyourlife.com is the best secret around, man. It's going to make you feel like a million bucks to give this gift. And it's so special to get one. That's how this all started. I was gifted one of these. Now I'm advertising their product because I believe in it. My family loves paintyourlife.com and yours will too. And I want to remind you at paintyourlife.com, there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping to get this special offer. Just text the word ERIC to 64000. That's ERIC to 64000. Text E-R-I-C to 64000. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Terms apply. Available at paintyourlife.com forward slash terms. One more time, text the word ERIC to 64000. That's E-R-I-C to 64,000. And we thank Paint Your Life for sponsoring our podcast and, well, all the holiday gatherings in my life because you can't miss with PaintYourLife.com. Real quick, while you were uh, explaining what you liked about Vern, I managed to find the results from WWFOldSchool.com. 
here are the results from your first AWA show, November 25th, 1971 in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the AWA tag champs, the crusher and red Bastine got a win over blackjack Lanza and Bobby Heenan was on that card. Uh, Billy Robinson would wrestle Ray Stevens. Ivan Koloff would wrestle Don Morocco. Lars Anderson would wrestle bull Belinsky. Larry, the ax hitting would wrestle, uh, Billy red cloud and Jack Bentz would wrestle Dennis O'Brien. So you saw, uh, saw some old school talent right there. I guess I don't even, I wouldn't have normally guessed. Yeah. Bobby Heenan would have been on that card, but he was. Yeah. Look, Bobby Heenan was a, a fixture throughout the Midwest. You know, he lived in Indianapolis, but he, you know, he, Chicago was one of, you know, Vern had, you know, as far as major markets, television markets, um, Vern had Chicago, Minneapolis, mm, I'm not sure Milwaukee could be considered a major market, but kind of sort of, uh, because of its proximity, especially to Chicago, uh, Denver was another one of Vern's big markets, um, San Francisco, ironically, um, but the rest of the markets for Vern were Omaha, Nebraska, Des Moines, Iowa, Siren, Wisconsin. You know, they were smaller TV markets, but he did have some fairly sizable TV markets. But yeah, to have all of that talent come in and Bobby Heenan, of course, was very active. You know, he, he worked the Midwest a lot during that period of time. So yeah, I was pretty familiar with Bobby as a performer. Loved, loved, loved his work, especially when he was able to stay physical. It was just amazing. Well, let's talk about when you actually get a chance to work with Vern Gagne. You've told the story how you looked up Vern Gagne in the phone book and you wanted to call him up and pitch Ninja Star Wars that you and Sonny Ono had developed. Well, you had big balls on you even back then, didn't you? Oh, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think it was so much um, having big balls. Um, I just... You know, when I was in my 30s, and I'm still this way, I, I actually have to manage it sometimes because it can get out of control. But I think anything's possible. I, I I don't think there's anything that I can't do if I'm excited about doing it. And clearly that's not the case, <laughs> but I don't care. I, I, I feel the way I feel. So when the idea popped into my head, you know, Hey, maybe I can go meet Vern Gagne. Keep in mind, although it was, you know, quite a quite a bit earlier, um, I I reached out to him twice and knocked it out of the park both times. So I was kind of good with it, <laughs> um, it or at least once I should say once before. And again, because Vern was so just approachable, and he was just honest to God, you could talk to Vern for five minutes and you felt like you'd known him for five years. So I was like, eh, what the hell? What have I, and this is kind of how I approach life. What have I got to lose Right. that I can't, re- if, if I can replace it, I'll risk it. It's kind of my approach. I thought, well, what have I got to lose? All he can say is, sorry, not interested. Okay, move on. It doesn't cost me a dime. And that's kind of been your approach for the rest of your professional career, right? Why not? It still is. You know, I, I endeavor to um, kind of plug the holes of knowledge that I don't have and if, if I get start getting, ex- this is where I guess maturity and inexperience, you know, <laughs> failing, succeeding, failing, you know, you kind of put it all in a pot, stew it up, turn the heat up to about 180 degrees, let it simmer for a while. And hopefully you've got a little bit of experience coming out of that. But, um, yeah, I, I feel the same way to this day. I just spend a little bit more time trying to understand what I don't understand before I jump off the ledge. But you know, if the time's running on the clock and I got to jump without a net, I'm 
I'm going. <laughs> I'll still do it. You've uh, talked about how you negotiated with Vern the 50-50 split for the profits of the game in exchange for advertising. Uh, who do you think got the better end of that deal in the end? By a distance that is immeasurable, that would be me. <laughs> I mean, you, I yeah, it's Look, I'm sitting here talking to you yeah. because of that silly game and that opportunity. So absolutely, that would be me. Did Vern remember uh, you when, when Mike Shields hired you, or how does that come to be? Oh, no, man. The day that Vern met me you know, the, for the first time uh, in high school at that regional wrestling event, he probably met that day no fewer than 150 or 200 other kids just like me. Right. <laughs> and, and I was no standout. Like I said, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't one of the guys favored to win anything. I was just happy to be there and hang with my buddies and bang it out on the mat for six minutes, <laughs> every opportunity I could. But no, Vern would not have mem- remembered me then. And actually, when I was on the show um, that particular day, if I spoke to Vern, and I don't know, he may have been a part of the interview. I don't remember the interview that much itself other than meeting Marty O'Neill. <clears throat> it was so brief, and he had so much other stuff going on that I doubt he would have remembered me from that. So I reminded him, by the way, you know the deal, brother. You know sales. I, I, I reminded him that we had met previously and that, of course, I was at the regional tournament at the Mount High School in 1973. And, you know, we talked about some of the names that did come out of that regional tournament and on to success. Brad Ringens, by the way, infamously was a part of one of Vern Gagne's camps later on. But when I was in high school is when I first met Brad Ringens. So it was easy for me by 1980, whatever it was, seven to go, oh, by the way, you know, Brad Ringen's good friend of mine, regional tournament, you know, Mount High School, 1970. Oh, yeah, you know, hey, remember I wrestled on the AEU freestyle Greco-Roman team? You let me, you helped support. The-. So by the time I got done thanking him and reminding him of, you know, the limited contact that we had in the past, he felt like I was a distant cousin. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about the AWA offices. Uh, most everybody listening to this is familiar with the conversations we've had about you know, the, the towers in Atlanta, uh, for Turner and CNN. And of course, Vince has his own Titan towers. And during our interview with Jim Crockett, I even asked about his old office for Jim Crockett promotions. What about the AWA facility? Can you describe that for us? Yeah. Um, it was Vern had, I believe he had an office right before I got the job in 1987. He used to have an office in a really, really nice office tower um, called Shillard Plaza. But he had subsequently bought a building right across the highway. It was on Highway 12, which is one of the main highways going from Minneapolis out into the western suburbs. Um, Vern bought a building that I think previously was, was either a church. It was a very modern looking building. So when I say a church, I know the first thing that comes into people's minds is a traditional, you know, beautiful architecture church. But that this wasn't the case. This looked more. This looked like an office building from the outside. But um, it was a really nice office building. When you walked in the front doors, of course, it, it very well landscaped. It was kind of set back off the highway. Uh, really deep, thick, you know, grass and huge. Um, 
uh, trees and evergreens. So it, it looked pretty, it was a good looking building. But when you walk through the, fir- the glass doors, when you entered, um, it was a large lobby. I would probably say it was about 50 foot deep by maybe 25, 30 foot wide. And of course you had to walk in and there'd be the receptionist. And then behind the receptionist, there was a long hall and off to the side, you'd walk down that hall and that's where all of the offices were. And there were offices on both sides of that hall, relatively small, but perfectly efficient, nice offices. Each one of them had a nice window. So there was a lot of daylight in the building and Vern's office was all the way down at the end of that hall, which I would say was probably, I don't know, 200 feet long, maybe 150 feet long. It's hard to, hard to remember really. Um, but you'd go all the way down to the end and the last door on the right was the door into Vern's office. So it was, and he, and he had a great office. He had a great office, huge office, huge office. He and you know, normal size desk, nothing too elaborate there. It wasn't so ornate or anything, but, um, in that, in Vern's office, there was a long, it was the longest conference table that I had ever seen at that point in my life. Now today it wouldn't be that unusual, but for me at that time, I was like, wow, look at this table. There has to be 25, 30 chairs and nice chairs. It was a nice conference table. Like, oh my God, how many people really work here behind the scenes? It was massive. Of course, Vern's big chair was at the end. I thought, man, this is going to be so cool. But, um, that the first time walking into that office, but yeah, it was a, it was a really, really nice office. And then go back. Okay. Now I just walked you through the office setup, go back to the glass doors. You walked through those glass doors. And if you looked immediately to your right, there was a set of double doors. And if you walked through those double doors, that was what was, I think the church, because it had a ceiling that was kind of gabled and it was, you know, really, really nice wood. I think it was probably, um, it would have been maple. It might've been oak, but it was really beautiful and ornate with big beams. And it was a very deep, wide, um, area with, with a very high ceiling. So I think that's where the church was before Vern bought the building. That's what became the television studio for the AWA. There are many paths to finding your family story. Whichever way you choose, tracing your family generations back with a family tree or uncovering your ethnicity with Ancestry DNA, it's easy to get started with Ancestry. An Ancestry DNA test will tell you where your ancestors are from, and Ancestry's billions of records and millions of family trees let you discover their personal stories. You can have a famous relative or perhaps a photo of your great grandma as a little girl. Whatever you find, it's sure to change the whole way you look at your family history and yourself. After all, the story of your family is the story of you. Researching your history is a fun activity for the whole family, and the stories you learn about your shared past can bring you closer together. Ancestry DNA can reveal ethnic origins and provide historical details that bring unique family stories to life. Ancestry DNA doesn't just tell you which countries you're from, but can also pinpoint the specific regions within them, giving you insightful geographical detail about your history. You can trace the paths of your recent ancestors and learn how and why your family moved from place to place around the world. No other DNA test provides such a unique interactive experience. 
This has been something that I've enjoyed with my family and I know Eric's done it with his. And I'll be honest, we were always told, well, you're this and you're that and you're, uh-uh, I got it all wrong. But I know what's really going on now. Thanks to ancestry DNA. It's time to start making discoveries with ancestry, grab an ancestry DNA kit and start a free trial to amplify your discoveries with ancestry's billions of records. I've done this. It's super easy. I mean, silly, easy. It's so fun when you get the reports back. Start exploring your family story today. Head to our website right now at Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks to get your Ancestry DNA kit and start your free trial. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. That's Ancestry.com forward slash 83 weeks. I'm just fascinated by the old uh, makeup of the way the business was ran. How many folks do you think were actually in the office? I mean, you sort of joked when you saw the size of it, you assumed, oh, this must be thousands of people or whatever it was, but actual day to day in the office, when you're hired on, it's sort of the dying day of the, of the promotion. What's that look like? There were probably a dozen people, you know, from the receptionist. Yeah, maybe more. I would say probably 15, 17 people that were there on a daily basis. Of course, when talent would come in to do what we used to call market edit promos, which I don't think are even done anymore. But uh, when we used to do those for television, of course, there'd be, you know, 40, 50 guys would fly in from all parts of the country or drive in from different parts of the country uh, for an entire day, sometimes two days to cut all of those interviews. But if you're talking about the core office, I would say between 15 and 17 people. Talk to us about your interaction with, uh, Vern. I think you were hired on to do direct sales for the syndication rights. Is that right? How involved was Vern with that process with you? He, he was not, you know, unless there would be certain occasions because, you know, Vern, again, he was just such a, he was such a salesman. Really. He, he really, really was. Um, and he, he had a lot of relationships with program directors or general managers um, around the Midwest because, it, you know, at some point in time, Vern probably, you know, um, uh, performed in some of those local markets for his live shows. And as a part of that, as a smart man, you spend a little time, you know, with the general manager that airs your show because the only way you sell tickets, and this is, you know, an interesting part of the business back then, you know, television was not a revenue stream for anybody back then. Television was a lost leader. It was an infomercial. It was something that a promoter had to produce and get on the air in order to have the possibility of selling tickets to a live event. So, you know, like I said, it wasn't as if these general managers or program directors were paying for the privilege of airing the show. It was exactly the opposite. And Vern, whenever he would go into Des Moines or Milwaukee or wherever, lacrosse, um, he always spent FaceTime with either the program director and the general manager or both. So Vern had a lot of relationships with certain key people in key markets. And if I was going into a market to try to get back on the air, if the show had been canceled or to try to get a renewal, if the contract was up for renewal, um, if it was somewhere where I thought Vern could help, I'd 
you know, go into Vern's office and say, Vern, I'm going to meet so-and-so, you know, do you, have you ever worked with them before? And of course, Vern would tell me a story or two and, you know, obviously tell me to give this individual his best and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, Vern, Vern would help whenever I needed it, but on a day-to-day basis, I was working directly with Mike Shields. Let's talk a little bit about, um, when you're working with Vern and it is his, his, his deal, it's his company, it's his organization. Does he hold like big rallies or meetings or get togethers? Or, I mean, what, what, what is the function of the office and what is Vern's leadership on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis look like? You know, Vern, Vern was in the office every single day. So he was very active. Um, and I can only speak to, you know, my time there from 87 to whenever I left in 91, I know Vern's business and probably his schedule and the way he conducted business was probably different prior to me getting there and prior to the likes of Hulk Hogan and Kurt Hennig and Gene Oakland and Bobby Heenan and so many others leaving his territory. But prior to that, when Vern was running hot, I'm sure his day-to-day operations were a little bit different and things were more intense, therefore more organized schedule-wise. But when I was there, it was very laid back. You know, everybody would, you know, the receptionist and Vern's secretary in particular, you know, they were the first to arrive generally. They'd show up at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning. My shield's about that same time. I obviously would come in about the same time Mike did. So there'd be a handful of us there. And then about 10 or 11 o'clock, you know, Wahoo McDaniels, who was booking along with Ray Stevens. God, what a great time of my life. That was such a great time for so many reasons. But, yeah, they would come strolling in, usually a little bit later in the morning. Uh, Greg would probably come in about that same time because, you know, Greg and Vern and Ray <clears throat> um, were the ones who were the quote-unquote bookers. So they would kind of all show up, you know, when they showed up later on in the morning and then throughout the day, you know, different people would be showing up or throughout the morning, I should say, different people would be showing up around different times. Joe Chupik. Hey, Joe, friend of the show. We used to call him Polish Joe. Actually, he called himself Polish Joe, but we jumped right in and tagged it. Uh, <laughs> Polish Joe Chupik was, he, he was the head of production. Well, Mike Shields was the head of production, but Joe Chupik was, he, he, he was hands-on on all things production. He did everything. Um he would show up usually, you know, right about the same time Mike Shields and I did. And it was very, uh, it was very informal. You know, Vern was not a corporate guy by nature. Um, if there was something that needed to be addressed, for example, if, you know, a big Thanksgiving you know, live event was coming up or Christmas coming up or a Christmas show or anything that, you know, was beyond the usual producing a show for ESPN and syndication and, doing the monthly live event or whatever it is they were doing at the time. Um, Yeah. Vern would have a meeting and that's where we'd all get around that big ass table. One and a quarter acres of nothing, but the finest Oak surrounded by really comfortable chairs. And when everybody get around the table and Vern would sit at the head and we just kind of informally go through whatever was uh, the topic du jour. I'm just fascinated by that whole process. Um, do you remember having any advice or tips when you're going into these markets where Vern had relationships? Is he dropping any old man knowledge or as they say here in the wrestling business, uh, is, is he allowing you under his learning tree, so to speak? 
Vern was, when it came to syndication, absolutely. You know, and, and Vern would spend as much time helping me understand the market, you know, from a live event perspective. Because, you know, the, it, those live events, although the, the stations that carried, you know, AWA weren't typically making any money. No, there were exceptions, I'm sure. <clears throat> but, you know, so I cleared my throat there. <laughs> there were exceptions, I'm sure, uh, in some cases. But for the most part, there was it was non-transactional um, beyond the agreement to carry the show. But. There were, you know, every one of those markets when Vern had a real, and a lot of times, you know, pro, you, I'd go in to see a program director and they were, you know, typically when I was in my early thirties, when I started this journey, the average program director that I would meet was in his fifties or sixties. Right. And a lot of those same guys were the guys that were really active at the peaks of their career when Vern was really active at the peak of his career. So there was always stories. You know, Vern would go out and hunt with a lot of these guys. You know, pheasant hunting and duck hunting is kind of a big day, thing in the Midwest, or at least it was back then. So if it was somebody that Vern knew from a hunting trip, we'd talk about that. So he'd give me a lot of he'd give me a lot of familiarity and backstory. So that when I went in to meet somebody that was a lot older than me, I was obviously you know new at the job and inexperienced. That was no secret. Um, but I would be able to talk about things that kind of broke those barriers down. But when it came to anything beyond that type of advice, Vern was really reluctant. I mean, he, not reluctant. He just wouldn't la- allow it. I was, he kayfabed everybody the, that needed to be kayfabed. If you weren't, if you weren't Greg Gagne, Wahoo McDaniel, or Ray Stevens, you weren't invited to talk about creative. If they were talking about creative and you happened to walk into an adjacent room and overhear the conversation, it was an incumbent, it was incumbent upon you to get the fuck out of there because it's not your world. Vern was very, very protective. So the long winded, of course, answer to your question is yes and no. Yes. When it came to anything other than the magic, but when it came to the magic, it took him, I think a year and a half before he even started. He, he didn't open the door. He unlocked it. And then a couple of days later, he'd crack it open a half an inch. And over the course of months, I finally got exposed to the magic, so to speak, of, of what was going on behind the scenes. But he was very, very protective of that. I'm glad you brought that up because I've been curious. When does it first come up? You know, I mean, listen, I'm sure you're going to, just through osmosis, pick up some wrestling knowledge. I mean, are there, we know, like, I shouldn't say we know I've been to the WWE headquarters and I know they have TVs all over the building, even in the elevators and they're replaying just a feed of, I'm sure it's just whatever's on the network feed, but even before that they had the prior week's raw or the prior week's SmackDown or whatever. Does that sort of exist in the AWA space or are you sort of kept separate from the wrestling piece because you're just selling the syndicated. You're just, you're just, just, just a salesman. Yeah, no, that, that was very much the case. And by the way, I was cool as hell with that. Of course, you know, to, to, and I know most people that are, you know, big wrestling fans, you know, when they hear this story, they'll go, yeah, but didn't you want to get, I mean, weren't you excited to get involved with creative, you know, get behind the scenes and, you know, learn how it, Actually, I wasn't right. I had no, 
it, it's not that I wasn't interested in it, but I had no ambition, which is hard for me to even say. I had to work on that. I had no ambition with regard to getting involved in the creative. So I didn't even want to know the magic. You know, you, I, I've, I've said this so many times, part of what makes part of, I'm going to be careful how I say things. I, I sometimes speak so broadly that it offends certain people, but for me personally, it's not that I didn't know that wrestling wasn't a real athletic contest for God's sake. I had figured that out, you know, when I was 12, I didn't know how it worked, but I knew it was, I was kind of like magic. You know? Okay, cool. I, I know you didn't really pull that rabbit out of your ass, but I'd like to know how you made it look like you did. I had that curiosity, of course, but I think this goes to my respect for Vern because that he did not want me to have that knowledge. But I also knew deep down inside that I enjoyed the product more because of the mystery. Yes. The mystery of how someone can pull a live rabbit out of their ass. I find that fascinating. Once I understand how it's done, eh, not so much. Right. And I, I not only was Vern adamant about not quote unquote smartening me up, I didn't want to be because I knew it would affect the way I felt about the product to a certain degree. Uh, who were your, uh, your pals when you worked in the AWA? Did you have any office buddies? I mean, you, you mentioned Mike Shields, but were there others that you worked closely with or just enjoyed hanging out with going to lunch with or whatever? Well, I, I, you know, I, I really, really liked Mike and his, um, his wife, Kathy passed away a, a while back. I really liked them both. You know, I mean, I mean, we went beyond just a working relationship. I remember taking his kids to the zoo one day, uh, Lori and I both took Mike's kids to the zoo when they were like six or seven years old. Um, just because I felt like taking a kid to the zoo. <laughs> so I, I asked Mike and his wife if, if that'd be okay. So, and you know, we spent, you know, a holiday or two with them and things like that. So my, and Mike was my mentor. Mike taught me Mike and I, you know, jokingly referenced the Dave Belzer comment because he posted a tweet recently that made it sound like, you know, I had to learn what ratings were all about through my relationship with Zane Bresloff, where, where Zane Bresloff would call Dave Meltzer and ask to interpret wrestling information, wrestling data, Nielsen data for wrestling. And then Dave Meltzer would have people believe that he explained it to Zane so Zane could explain it to me. I, I guess assuming that there was nobody in Turner Broadcasting that understood ratings or that we didn't have a guy by the name of Rob Garner, who was the vice president of syndication that worked for me. Um, but nonetheless, Mike was my mentor. Um, he not only taught me what ratings were, how they were, um, how they came to pass, you know, literally Mike Shields brought in a representative from Nielsen back in 87 or 88 sit, to sit down and walk us through how Nielsen actually calculated their data. A lot of people don't know it or didn't then. I certainly didn't. So it was, Mike was my mentor. He taught me so much about the basics, not, you know, in depth. I never became an expert at anything, but I had a, a pretty solid foundation 
of all aspects of the wrestling business. And that was primarily due to Mike Shields. Obviously, Vern was the opportunity, and Vern did help me in some aspects. But Mike was the guy that I, I would sit and talk to Mike for hours. You know, once the work was all done, we would sit around at the end of the day, and there were sometimes we, you know, we'd we'd be wrapped up by five thirty, and by nine o'clock, I'd I'd head home, and it was just talking about all the different aspects of the wrestling business. Mike's own experience, which, by the way, he worked for Jerry Jarrett for a long time. Uh, so Mike had a, that, that perspective and a lot of those stories to kind of bring to the discussion. And it was just, you know, it was a learning tree that as I talk about it now in this podcast, it makes me a little melancholy and, and I didn't realize how valuable those conversations, which for me at the time were just fascinating, entertaining ways of spending a couple hours after work, but what they really were, and I can see more clearly now is just one more layer of knowledge in, a, in, in, in the foundation that I had in professional wrestling long before I went to WCW and probably really the reason why, when the opportunity I got at WCW came up as executive producer, I was able to speak more fluently, not about the wrestling product, but about the television product and the operation because of that, albeit limited, but broad base of knowledge that Mike kind of mentored me through and, and helped me with. But to, to, to take it another step, I'm sorry, I'm so excited. This is a fun show for me. I became friendly pretty quickly with Wahoo McDaniels and Ray Stevens. Now, those guys, Conrad, I wish you could have been with me or been a fly on the wall. And I guess part of it is because it was also new to me. You know, everything was like, ah, like a little kid seeing a Christmas display for the first time. Everything was like bright, shiny objects for me. Um, and to sit down and actually, you know, grab a beer because occasionally, you know, there was a big refrigerator in Vern's office and occasionally at the end of the day, Ray and, and Ray Stevens and, and Wahoo McDaniel would sit around and have a couple beers and talk about the old days and shit. And to, to be able to be a part of those conversations. And we, I get along with Ray and Wahoo. Great. We hours and I don't know how many hours, probably days and weeks. We would, if you added it all together, we you know, we would sit around talking about those stories. Greg would have, you know, joined in quite often on those. Vern occasionally, depending on how much laughter was emanating from Ray and Wahoo's office, Vern would stick his head in and often join. So it was just such a, a valuable time that I, as I talk about it, I cherish it even more. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowners or renter insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. You know, we've often heard stories of, you know, whenever Vince is trying to recruit someone back in the day, he would wine them and dine them and send a limo for them and put them up at a fancy hotel and get them show tickets for their wife and the whole deal. But occasionally he would even bring them to his house. And you've mentioned Vern's house a few times here on the show. How did you get your first invite to go hang out with Vern at the homestead? 
you know, it happened um, as as time went on. Now we're we're kind of fast forwarding here, just a little bit, probably about a year or so. So we're probably in 1988 sometime. By that time, over, over that 12 month period of time, my relationship with with Vern got uh, it was obviously he was my boss. Okay, that goes without saying, but he also became a friend. Right. And we, it, to the extent, I should say, limited extent, that he loved to hunt. Vern loved to hunt pheasants, upland game. So did I. Vern loved German shorthair pointers, which is a real um, high – it's a very specific breed of, of hunting dog. Um, really, really high-powered dogs. He loved that particular breed. So did I. In fact, I had two of them. And I was – this is a real – Sidebar that I guess not a lot of wrestling fans know or care about, but right around this same time, as I often do, sometimes to my demise, but I got really passionate about, believe it or not, competitive pheasant hunting. They would have these pheasant hunting tournaments around the country where you would get a limited amount of time, a limited amount of shells, two guys and a dog go out and at the end of these tournaments – Whoever had the fastest time and the most birds would win. And by the way, these tournaments took place at <clears throat> the equivalent of Augusta for golfers, hunting clubs around the upper Midwest. So it was kind of a big damn deal. And I was training and breeding German short hair pointers for the express purpose of competing in these tournaments. And right around 1988, sometime in there, I think one of Vern's prized hunting dogs uh, and it, it just died of old age. It was an old dog. And at that same time, my dog, Ava, had a litter of pups, German short hair pups. And Vern was devastated. I know how that feels. Man, I've been through that. We all have. But I, I've been through that a lot. And I knew how bad Vern felt. And I also knew that I had a litter of pups on the ground that were probably worth close to $2,000 a piece. In, in that market because my dog had a really good reputation and all that. So yeah, I think I talked to Donna Ganya first, his daughter. Um, I said, Hey, you think your dad would be up, you know, for a new pup? It was shortly after his dog died. And sometimes that works out really well. Sometimes not so much. Right. So I, I asked Donna about it and she said, yeah. And I said, Hey Vern, I got something for you. I'd like to bring out to the house. I think it was right around, might've been right around Christmas time. I'm not sure. And, uh, he's sure. Come on out, Eric. And that was the first time I was ever in the house is when I delivered his puppy for him. And he loved that dog <laughs> and it, it, and it, and that dog, it was a female, uh, she exceeded Vern's and mine's by the way, expectations is a really, really good dog. And I, and after that, you know, I, I, I went duck hunting a couple times with Vern and Greg um, Vern used to belong to one of these hunting clubs called Marsh Lake Game Preserve outside of Minneapolis. And he had been a member there for years and years and years and years. And then he started inviting me to go out there and hunt with him there. And at that point, you know, going back and forth to Vern's house was more commonplace. Talk to us a little bit about Mrs. Ganya. We, uh, we've often heard a lot about Linda McMahon and even seen her on TV quite a bit. We've gotten lucky enough to get to know Mrs. B a little bit, but. Nobody really talks about Vern's misses. 
Yeah. Oh, I'm so ashamed. I can't remember her name off the top of my head, but hopefully it'll come back to me. Um, she was, I think her name was Mary. And if I, I know Ver, uh, Greg's wife's name, she, she passed away not long ago as well, but her name was Mary too. But I think Vern's wife's name was also Mary, which is the reason for some of my confusion. But Mary, uh, Vern's wife, Mary, was, uh, here's what I, I have two impressions of her. She was really, really tough. Now, she was not um, loud or she was kind of behind the scenes, but you knew behind the scenes that she was tough. And I, I don't know if it's from having been married to Vern for as long and, <laughs> and by osmosis, um, you know, understanding that the wrestling business is at that time and probably still could be considered a very carnivorous, carnivorous environment. Um, but probably more so back then. So she, my impression when I first met her is super friendly. I mean, just amazingly friendly, much like Linda McMahon. But when it came to business or something that affected Vern or the kids, then Mama Bear would kind of stand up and the sleeper wasn't quite good enough to win that argument. That was my impression of her. So she'd, she'd stay in the background unless she gets too close to something that had a direct effect on her family. And then her presence was felt. Like she wouldn't interrupt. She wouldn't chime in. But you knew she was watching everything like a hawk. Uh, her name was indeed Mary. Um, she uh, was a flight attendant once upon a time and then was a clothing model and there in the Twin Cities. And obviously, eventually, she became a fan of pro wrestling and became Mrs. Gagne. Uh, she, well, one more thing that I have in common with uh, Vern Gagne. His wife was a fashion model, and so was mine. Outstanding. No <laughs> wonder I did so well in the AWA. He, uh, he would unfortunately lose Mrs. Gagne in 2002. Uh, let's talk a little bit about when you're sort of moving up the ranks. Is Vern the one who asked you to do interviews after Larry Nelson gets arrested? And if not, who was? It was Greg Gagne who came to my office. Now, I'm not sure whose decision it was because obviously I wasn't in the room when the subject came up. Um, it could have been, you know, I'm speculating here because again, I wasn't in the room. I can't testify to something I didn't see or hear, but you know, when it became obvious that Larry Nelson wasn't going to make it, there were 50 or 60 guys standing around, you know, eating takeout food that were supposed to be doing market edit promos that weren't going to get them done because there was nobody else to do them. You know, uh, Mean Gene was gone. Bobby Heenan was gone. Um, there was nobody else to do it. And I, because I was calling on program directors and corporate sponsors and things like that. I typically would wear a button down shirt. I would wear a tie to work and a sport coat and generally, you know, take off the tie and hang it on the back of my door in the sport coat and, you know, work out the rest of my day, unless I had a meeting. So I, it was Greg Gagne, the, whoever decided, and I'm guessing it would be probably Mike Shields who had to figure out, okay, how do we produce these damn things with nobody to produce them with or no announcer to produce them with. And, I I'm guessing it would have been Mike Shields. that first suggested me. Um, 
because he had just had, Mike had more interaction with me on a day-to-day basis than either Vern or Greg. Probably saw that I might be able to work my way through it for, at least for a day. But regardless of that, it was Greg Gagne who came to my office and said, hey, you got your sport coat here, right? I said, yeah, Greg, it's right on the back of the door. You got a tie? Yeah, it's right underneath the sport coat, right under the back of the door. He said, put it on and come with me. <laughs> Whoa, okay. But it was, it was Vern that came to my office, but I don't know whose decision it was. That's your first time on TV? Uh, yeah, well... You know, I had done some modeling and some commercial work, but that's not quite the same thing. Um, so I've been in front of a camera before, but never specific, other than my brief experience in 1973 on the AWA show, um, hawking tickets to an amateur wrestling event. That was the first time I'd ever been on TV. Adfreeshows.com is the place to be. And not just because there are multiple pieces of content hitting your podcast stream daily. No, that's not it. Not just because you get to know on a one-to-one basis, guys like Jim Ross, Eric Bischoff, and Tony Schiavone. I mean, don't get me wrong. That's fantastic, but that's not it. Is it Medusa and AEW's very own Rebel? Well, no, but man, that's awesome too. It's all the exclusive content shows like X-Ray with Dr. Tom Pritchard, the Monday Mailbag with Mike Chioda and Gerald Briscoe. It's that fun show with Conrad's infamous chat group, The Sad News Bears. And I can't forget, Old Man Warner is a part of the family, and he's watching wrestling with your partner. That's right, your significant other watches wrestling with Mance, and he gives them his version of what's going on in an exclusive show we like to call Mance Splainin'. You ever spear somebody like that? Oh, no. Now, you paused there for a second. You had like you were thinking, should I say that I attacked somebody at the gas station one time because they were talking shit? So have you speared somebody or no? My husband. What, what did he do? Uh, Being a jerk like always. He was being a real some bitch out, out there talking shit? Oh, yeah. Well, next time, just hit him with like a chair, some, some bar, a barbed wire baseball bat. I'll get Silva to send y'all a weapon. You could use it all. We, we do have a, a barbed wire baseball bat. Where else are you going to find out your partner's weapon of choice when it's your time to go? So become part of the family now. Enjoy this and so many other outstanding shows and events. Make that decision and sign up today to join the fastest growing wrestling community over at adfreeshows.com. Let's talk about the product at the time. You mentioned who all wasn't there. Was there ever a moment before you started on TV when you're watching the TV show and feel like, man, this thing's getting outdated? No, no, there wasn't. Number one, I wasn't watching anybody else's stuff. Right. So there was, you know, I mean, I watched WWE, but it was two different worlds, you know, they were apples and oranges in the sense that they were both fruits, but the difference between an apple and an orange, just like the difference between WWF at the time and AWA was apples and oranges. It's just two different things. I also knew that Vern was on a limited budget. Right. It was no secret. Even when I first started there, money was fucking tight. It was, it didn't take me, you know, 
more than a week or 10 days to hear the conversations about, you know, live events in Minneapolis, at the Minneapolis Auditorium that used to draw, that used to sell out, that used to bring in hundreds of thousands of dollars that now you couldn't put 2,000 people into. So I, I became aware that there were massive budget restrictions on the AWA. Um, and when you realize that, well, you, you don't compare. You know, if, if you can only afford to drive a 10-year-old Kia, you don't compare your Kia to the guy driving a Ferrari next to you. Right. It's just he's got what he's got. We got what we got. And I loved my Kia at the time. I had so much fun doing what I was doing, and I was learning so much. And I think that's one of the reasons I loved it as much as I did, is every day was a new lesson in this industry that I knew nothing about coming in. Whether it was syndication, I got to develop I, – I sold the largest corporate sponsorship in the AWA history, which kind of doesn't sound like a big deal. But I went to a brewing company, G. Heilman Brewing Company in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, which at the time was one of the larger brewing companies in the United States. It's since, I think, been acquired by Coors or Miller or somebody. But at the time, they were massive. And I went to them and secured a $100,000 sponsorship for a touch football game. And I I had to learn how to present that to executives at G. Heilman Brewing Company, the head of marketing, guy by the name of John Niebeck. John, if you're out there, I owe you one, brother. But you know, I didn't know how to pitch a corporate sponsorship. I had never done that before. So I had to learn that. And again, this is why I'm, I guess I feel so passionately about my time in the AWA. Where else would a guy who has zero experience in television or anything associated with it have the opportunity to learn how to do things like that? I mean, it's just, I was so, uh, but yeah, I did that. We had a touch football game at the Metrodome, which was at the time one of the largest indoor sporting arenas in the country. And we had, you know, NFL players past and present, celebrities and everybody. We drew like over 10,000 people to a touch football game. It was awesome. But I got to learn how to do that. That's your biggest sale probably ever, right? I mean, in the AWA business, $100,000. Oh, by, by a mile. I mean, by a mile. And again, it was, you know, I always say this, a lot of it was me, my passion, you know, just at that time when I walked into your room, if I was excited about something and you were about to take your last breath on the face of the earth, I would extend your life for a period of time because my energy at that point was contagious. You, it, it, and that was part of it. Part of it was just luck, timing. I happened to have the right executive, guy by the name of John Niebeck, who just, he oversaw a lot of the bigger brands at G. Highland because they had like 31 different brands of beer that they actually brewed. You know, a little bit of beer history. You know, Lone Star Beer, for example, was a G. Highland Brewing Company beer. It was brewed in La Crosse, Wisconsin, but it was branded as what was a local Texas brewery at one time. And G. Holloman was kind of like the, they were the, um, what do they call them now? Um, they were the white label beer brewer for 31 different major brands in the United States. You know, again, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, a lot of these brands like Lone Star, uh, Olympia Beer, for example, in Washington, um, Grain Belt Beer in Minneapolis, 
these were all beers that at one time were locally brewed, but then got bought out by G. Heilman Brewing Company. So G. Heilman kept the labels, they kept the brand, but they brewed the beer in one facility in La Crosse. So the executive I was dealing with, John Niebeck, oversaw a beer brand in Minneapolis called Schmidt Beer. And Schmidt was one of the more popular, you know, it was a blue collar beer. It was an high-end beer. It was, you know, a working man's beer. Um, also the most common. And John Niebeck was overseeing that. Well, John happened to be a wrestling fan that grew up in the Midwest. So it was easy for, and that was luck, right? I had nothing to do with that. That was just luck. But between my passion and a little bit of luck, um, yeah, we were able to put together a, a, a package that, you know, was appealing and, yeah, that was the biggest thing. That was the biggest, I don't think that's the biggest sponsorship Vern had ever done, even when he was running on all eight cylinders. Tell me about other sales that you may remember, or what was the typical sale that you were looking for? Do you recall? It depends. You know, some of it was local. For example, you know, we, we taped the ESPN show down in Rochester, Minnesota. So we'd go down there once a month. And to offset the cost, now the, you know, the, the, the beer sponsorship I got, that was an entirely different animal for, for a one-time only event. Had a lot of the media associated with it because I tagged in local radio. I tagged in newspapers. I tagged in a charity. I mean, I brought a lot of pieces to the table to make it attractive. Um, but, what, for example, when we go down to Rochester once a month, because we were down there once a month, it was consistent throughout the year. I was able to put together sponsorships with, you know, bars and restaurants, for example, to help offset some of the promotion. Now, they weren't nearly as big as what I did with the beer company. But if I could go into Rochester, Minnesota and find a restaurant, perhaps find a bar, perhaps find uh, a, a mom and pop retail s- store of some kind that, you know, targeted men uh, 18 to 49 or whatever the demo was I was selling at the time. Um, I could go in there and say, Hey, you know, this month, here's your spot. Here's what we'd like to do with you. Those, those sponsorships would have $5,000 price tags, $20,000 price tags, depending on what it was. For example, you know, the infamous pull apart between myself and diamond Dallas page. One of the reasons that I got so hot at page and allowed myself to act so unprofessionally and irresponsibly is to want to kick his ass in the bar. Um, the reason I got so angry is because I worked hard to put together a sponsorship with this particular nightclub. And it was my opinion that at that moment, DDP was acting in a way that reflected poorly on the AWA. Therefore me, because I was the one that put the deal together. So we went to the, I went to the nightclub and I don't remember what the dollar value was probably 10, 15 grand. And here's what you're going to get. We're going to promote your bar nightclub on all of our television shows and our syndicated markets surrounding your, your location. So Minneapolis, Des Moines, Iowa, Mason city, Iowa, North and South Dakota, La Crosse, Wisconsin, anybody that can drive, you know, to this nightclub reasonably, we're going to promote your show in your, your bar in. And then we're going to bring, you know, all of our top talent or many of our top talent to the nightclub to meet with fans after the show. That would be a typical sponsorship that I would have been involved in putting together. And the price tags range from probably five grand to 20 grand. Let's talk a little bit about uh, day to day with Vern. What was that like at this point? I mean, did you have a sense that, I mean, you said 
you heard things like, oh, we used to sell this out every night. When did you first realize the stress that he was under? Was that pretty early on or were you sort of kept away from that piece of the business? No, as time went on and, and, you know, again, now starting, you know, certainly around the time I started doing television for, for Vern, he, he didn't officially ever pull me aside and start, you know, sharing knowledge with me with regard to, you know, the magic, so to speak. Um, but he also wasn't concerned about me being in the proximity. So if, you know, part of that was, look, dude, I was conducting the interviews. Vern's directing a lot of the talent, which is another thing that I want to really be clear about. I take credit for certain things, you know, uh, my ability to perform a promo or, or teach how promo should be taught. Um, I think I have a real feel for that. Well, guess where that came from? I wasn't born with that shit. I didn't read about it in a book. I couldn't take a pill and figure it out. So it, it came from Vern. I had this, again, pointing to just how valuable that opportunity was. For a Long before I stepped in front of, a, in front of the camera, I was actually operating the camera in production. This was before Greg came and got me to, to hold the stick. There were occasions where I had to run the camera. Well, when you're running the camera during these market edit promos, and once Vern got used to me being around, right, he would start direct, in the very beginning, he would pull talent away from me. We're out of, eyes, out of eyesight and out of earshot. And he would work on their promo with them and then come back and try it again. And if it wasn't right, he'd take them back into the next room, work on it again, bring them back, try it again. So in the beginning, I didn't get to see a lot of that direction or hear a lot about Vern's opinion or perspective on how to do a promo. But as time went on, now I'm running in the camera and I'm listening and watching and seeing the results. You know, people wonder where, how did Ric Flair become such a great promo? How did Kurt Hennig come become such a great promo? How about Rick Rude? You know, where did Mean Gene learn how to become Mean Gene? In part, not in total. So much of that, how did Nick Bockwell become such a great you know, interview. A lot of that came from Vern. Jesse Ventura. Sorry, Jesse. You became Jesse Ventura because of the two. You may not have liked Vern. You may not even acknowledge it. But, man, working in that environment taught you how to do things that today you find very few people able to do. So I, I got to see a lot of that and learn a lot of that. But it took a long time. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about how Vern was with the talent. Did you see any interaction with Vern and the boys as they like to Oh yeah. Them? Yeah. Going, going to, uh, I'm sorry. I never really answered the previous question in terms of Vern, um, showing stress, even when I was able to, you know, see him in action, you know, outside of just a conversation with me, um, he never sold it, man. He was always smiling. He was, he was up all the time. Like it wasn't really happening. He just, when I say no sell, I'm not, you know, saying he walked in and he kept a straight face and didn't show any negative emotion. He was so overwhelming with positive emotion and vibes that you would have never guessed that things were collapsing financially for him. He was able to keep that away from, certainly from me. And I'm sure there were people that he dealt with that saw that. But not me and not, not generally the people in the office. How was he working with, uh, the boys at this time? Whatever you he saw. He could be tough. He could be tough. You know, uh, 
he, you know, for example, if Vern was directing me, you know, as if I'm doing interviews, he was pretty gentle. I would say, I think Vern recognized that I had no experience and I was learning on the job and he nurtured me as opposed to hammer fisting me. Now, when it came to talent, it was a little bit different. Vern related to wrestling talent a little differently than he related to people in the office, including me. So I would, I would get glimpses of frustration, I think would be the best way to say it. When Vern was trying to get a specific talent to emote or cut a different kind of promo or, or change a promo or change a perspective on something, you know, if the talent pushed back and the talent didn't have a lot of experience, Vern could be really tough. I mean, he could be almost abusive, not physically, but in terms of intimidation and he would, it would get the best of them. You know, Vern would, whenever I think of Vern and I, I think of this in a, in a favorable way, it's not going to sound like it, but whenever Vern would get excited, I got to take my glasses off. You can't see this and take the earpiece out of my ear. Cause it'll go sailing across my office, but you'd see Vern and, you know, he'd be going back and forth with the town. If the interview just wasn't going the way he wanted to go for Jesus, Jesus. And at the same time he was saying, Jesus, he would slap the palm of his hand into his forehead and it was like, oh man, he's getting fucked. He's getting hot now. <laughs> but then he'd calm right back down. Now there was times when with certain talent that had more, you know, leverage, Jesse Ventura, for example, it would get to the point of almost getting fit. You would think, oh man, this, it's going to go down. These two are going to go at it. But whenever that happened, the talent, including Jesse would back down. And when I say that, I don't think Jesse was afraid of Vern. I think Jesse had respect for Vern. Yes. Um, but there were a lot of talent there. You know, Vern was in his early 60s when I went to work for him. It might have been 60, 61, when I think, when I first started, somewhere in that area. Vern was in great shape. I, I, I would suggest that when Kurt Angle is 60 or 61, he would still snatch fuck out of just about anybody that was a professional wrestler in his proximity. It's, it's not like riding a bike, but it's not unlike riding a bike when it comes to, you know, basic self-defense and in a, in a brief moment, I don't think Vern would have been able to go nine minutes on a mat, but for 30 or 40 seconds, he'd have been held to pay. And I, most talent knew that they did not want to physically threaten, you know, Vern Gagne. Greg, yeah, they'll threaten Greg, but they're not threatening Vern. We all know that Eric loves coffee, and if you love coffee, drink it the way Eric does in an 83 Weeks coffee mug from BoxaGimmicks.com, the official store of 83 Weeks and all of ad-free show podcasts. Not only are there mugs, but there's hoodies, posters, and more. Or grab a shirt from EricBischoff.com. We have a wide variety of 83 Weeks-inspired gear, so two of the best ways to support the show, grabbing a gimmick from Box of Gimmicks or a shirt from ericbischoff.com. We've heard crazy stories about traveling with Vince, whether it's uh, Jim Ross saying that Vince drives 100 miles an hour and pays no attention to road signs or even cones. Uh, Bruce Pritchard, of course, famously tells stories about being on a plane with Vince, and he's trying to bribe passengers to put their cigarettes out. Did you ever travel with Vern? Any memories about that? 
Um, no, I mean, other than, you know, going duck hunting, <laughs> but that wasn't quite the same thing. Uh, no, never did. Let's do another one here about, uh, being on ESPN because it was around this time where, uh, kids my age could come home and, and throw on the TV and boom, we could watch a little AWA action on ESPN. Was that a big deal to you personally to be on a big time television network like that? Honestly, it wasn't. I mean, let me rephrase it. Of course it was, but not any more so than being on my local television right. show. I mean, my first, the, you know, when I broke my television on camera cherry, so to speak, it was a big deal for me. I'm a human being. Anybody, I don't know. I just wouldn't ever believe anybody that would say otherwise especially someone my age. I grew up, you know, in the very early stages of television popularity in the United States. Certainly it had been around a long time before me, but late fifties and early sixties when the economy was finally really coming back and people could afford, you know, a television in, in my childhood, all the way up until my early teens, my family could only afford one. Nobody had a television in their bedroom. We didn't have a television in the living room and a television in the family room downstairs. We had one television. Television was the center of our family's kind of communal existence on a day-to-day basis. After dinner, we'd all sit around. What did we do? We watched TV together. On weekends, we watched TV together. That's what brought the family together. So television was a big deal to me. And obviously, the first time I got a chance to be on television on a regular basis as the host of AWA, for example, in Minneapolis or doing play by play. Actually, I was doing both at the same time, but, you know, knowing that my friends from high school and, you know, people that I knew and my family could see me on this magic box because it was still magic to me. It still is in some respects, just in a different way. Of course, I, I was just like anybody else would be. I was freaking giddy, but after a while, I'm not to say not to say that I got used to it, but it was no longer new, right? Um, by the time ESPN came along, that giddiness, the giddy factor, was no longer there. It was just part of what I did. I didn't think of myself as wow, now I'm on national television. To me, I still saw myself as a local television guy. Um, so it didn't really change my perspective. Still grateful, but it just didn't change anything for me. Let's ask about, uh, Vern's like TV days. We've heard how Vince is and used to be on TV days, but we also know he never misses. You said earlier, Vern was in the office every day. Was Vern at every TV taping? And what was that like? Yes, he was. And that's where I would see. Now I didn't have, fortunately, I didn't have to interact a whole lot with Vern, um, at TVs when I started doing them for ESPN. Uh, a little bit, but mostly it was either Mike Shields, who was my boss at the time, who, who gave me direction. And by the way, he also coached me on camera as well. Again, Mike had a lot of experience working for Jerry Jarrett, seen a lot of the great names, including Jerry Lawler, that had come through while uh, Mike Shields was there. So Mike had a very, very good perspective, and he was a great teacher. He, he, he really was a good teacher. So most of my direction would come from Mike Shields, but occasionally it would, you know, depending on who I was interviewing. You know, I remember the first time I interviewed a guy who became one of my closest friends in life, as well as in wrestling, Masa Saito. 
Uh, Vern was very much a part of that interview um, in, in terms of directing it. But for the most part, you know, uh, it was me, Mike Shields, occasionally Greg Gagne, but I would say 80% of my interaction on a day-to-day basis at television was with Mike Shields. When you're talking about Greg Gagne, we haven't really talked about this piece. We've heard about Vince McMahon, the TV character and the businessman, but thanks to Bruce, we've even gotten to hear a little bit about Vince, the dad. Can you tell us anything about Vern, the father? Probably in much the same way that I think those of us who have worked within any proximity to Vince probably has thought at one point or another that Stephanie McMahon is the absolute apple of his eye for lack of a cooler way of saying it. He, he, Vince, I think holds Stephanie as a father on such a high pedestal, but also because of what Stephanie's done professionally. You know, she's a very, very successful. She's learned so well. She's so good at what she does. So between the way I think Vince looks at Stephanie as a, as a daughter emotionally and, and as well as what she's done within WWE, he's such Stephanie, I think is such a special part of Vince's life to a, a similar degree. I would say Vern felt the same way about his daughter, Donna. You, you could just tell that Donna was, although Vern loved all his kids, don't get me, just like I'm sure Vince does, right? But there was this different level of relationship, I think, between Vern and, and Donna. Certainly Vern felt he loved, loved Greg, you know, as you would expect. But Donna was just a little bit different. Let's talk about, uh, why is that? Why would now? Why is that funny? I don't know. Is just it? the way you phrase it, a little bit different. I don't no, know. I mean, the, the, the relationship was a little bit different. It, yeah. it went just slightly beyond what you would expect a father daughter relationship in the sense that I think Donna was so special to Vern for whatever reason. I know I, you know, I have a unique relationship with both my son and my daughter, you know, right. they're a year and a half apart. We, Everybody grew up under the same environment, seeing the same things, hearing the same things, experiencing the same things. But my daughter and my son are two entirely different people. And the relationship that I have with my daughter is slightly different than the relationship that I have with my son. Not better or worse, just just slightly different. We've covered Super Clash 3 from Chicago in the archives with uh, Carrie and Lawler on top and you sort of describing what it was like to help build the set. Um, was Vern impressing upon you how important this pay-per-view was, or was that just sort of understood? No, it was understood, man. It was all, all hands on deck. It was a big thing. You know, it had never been attempted before to my knowledge. Um, it, it was, yeah, you just knew It, it was exciting. I didn't know enough about the financial conditions or situation at AWA. I knew it was rough. We all knew that you could avoid it. Right. But it wasn't painful. You didn't feel like you were walking into a morgue every time you got into the office. Uh, we, nobody felt like it was inevitable that the doors were going to close. There was always hope in a lot of it. And I think this event was that hope, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel. And it was, 
you know, from my perspective, again, I'm, I don't know, I've been in the business kind of for two years. So, and on a very limited way, I wasn't watching what was paying attention to what was going on around the country. I didn't really know a lot about, you know, the pay-per-view industry because Vern wasn't in that business. Right. He was in the television business, not the pay-per-view business. So that was a, that was a whole, you know, I knew it was out there, but I didn't know how it worked. Um, but this was Vern's effort and attempt to kind of, to break into that revenue stream. So we all knew it was really important, but it was exciting. It wasn't like, oh my God, we got a gun to back our head. If we don't pull this off, we're all going to get fired. It wasn't that. It was like, oh man, this is going to be great. We're going to tour because I've never toured before. For me, at least, an AWA tour amounted to me jumping in my car and driving for an hour and 40 minutes to Rochester, Minnesota, and then turning around and driving home when I was done. This was like, oh, we're going to go to Nashville. I think we, we, what we do, we did Chicago. Nashville, Louisville, I can't remember where it went, but I had never been to Nashville before. I got to drive to Nashville. This is awesome. I'm, I've always loved road trips. So I got to load up my set in the van that I got to rent, load up my, throw in a little mattress for my, what was probably five or six year old son at the time, throw him in the back of the truck and off we go to Nashville. That was a blast, man. That was a blast. But it, we knew it was important. Talk to me a little bit about um, criticism and feedback and coaching. You know, Ric Flair used to refer to Vern as coach. And I'm wondering, when you're out here on his TV, do you ever get any direct feedback or criticism? Or, hey, Eric, good job there, but next time don't do this. What, what, what oh, does that look oh, like? From day one, from day one, when it came to, when you're on Vern's TV, he's hands-on. Okay. So that's why I was, I guess I, I did a poor job of explaining a few minutes ago, but again, I, you're going to hear me say grateful probably so many times people are going to get sick of hearing it, but it is what it is, man. I'm as a green, I hadn't developed any bad habits as an announcer when I started because I had never been one before. So in many respects, I was this like really gooey piece of clay that you could shape into anything that you wanted. And Vern did, you know, I got a lot of direction and some of it was, you know, in the beginning, it was a little uncomfortable because I felt like, God, I'm never going to figure this out. I'm never going to get good at this because I was intimidated by it. And then to be taking, you know, direction that sometimes could have easily been interpreted as criticism from a guy that I looked up to so much, you know, it was, yeah, it was uncomfortable at times just for a short period of time though. And then as I started to get more comfortable doing it, and as I, once I got more comfortable doing it, I could start focusing on actually getting better doing it. He's like, Vern would say, no, you need to do this. You need to do this. And he give me a list of things I needed to do to be better while we're doing it, by the way, this is all in real time. And I couldn't process those things fast enough because I was so uncomfortable. I was so focused on trying to get comfortable that I wasn't able to focus on getting better. But after time goes on, time went on, those, that direction that he gave me started having a bigger impact on me because I could understand it better. Right. I was no longer frozen in my tracks, so to speak. I could really listen to him and understand what he meant by what he was saying. And then once that started happening, then it got to be fun. And I loved the direction. 
because I saw Vern, you know, I saw Vern giving all kinds of top talent direction and now he's giving it to me. I knew then I didn't know well enough, but I knew then what a great opportunity I was experiencing. So yeah, I loved it. He took it, especially kind of when I started doing play by play. Oh my God. Yeah, he was all, cause Vern had a very specific and he did with announcing too, but I think it was more, um, more obvious and more intense when it came to play by play. Vern had a very specific idea of how play by play should be produced. Um, and I got a lot of that. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, when we're, we're winding things down like super clash Four. you're helping promote some of the towns for the event. Is that really like your first taste of promoting? And if so, was Vern's was Vern very hands-on with you or at this point, and I guess April of 90 had, he started, started maybe to check out a little bit. No, super, super clash Four. um, while I was on the team that was involved in promotion, I certainly wasn't driving it at all. I was nothing more than support. Um, my first real experience flying solo promoting was in Mason city, Iowa, coincidentally where Sonny Ono lives <laughs> and and Sonny was a part of it. He doesn't know this. He will when he hears this because he listens to almost every episode. But one of the markets that AWA didn't have on their station list that they needed to have because they needed to run live events in Iowa was a station called KIMT. I'm pretty sure it was that. So I, you know, with Sonny's help, because by that time, Sonny and I had been friends for almost 10 years. Jeez, man, it's hard to believe, isn't it? It is. I've been I've been friends with Sonny longer than you've been alive. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. But I said, hey, Sonny, I need some help clearing a, a television station down here. Well, Sonny, Sonny had his own karate school and was putting on karate tournaments a couple times a year. He was very active in the community. You know, it was Mason City, Iowa was a fairly small community. And Sonny was a big fish in that pond. So Sonny set me up uh, with some people that he knew at the, the station. And I went in and sealed the deal. So we got local television. And then as a part of launching the television show, we wanted to promote a live event almost immediately. And Vern let me handle that one by myself. No, I, I tapped in, you know, I asked questions, Mike Shields first, sometimes Greg Gagne, Wahoo, Ray, I think Wahoo, yeah, Wahoo was on the card. He wrestled Manny Fernandez in a bloodbath. That was my first event, Mason City, Iowa. But, you know, I, I got to work with local radio, local newspaper, um, a local charity, you know, the venue itself and got to promote the thing from the ground up. It was great. Uh, Sean Michaels and Marty Janetti were on that card as well. So it was, it was pretty cool. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about paychecks. We mentioned earlier that things were going to get tight and you've even talked about here before that there were times where you didn't get paid. Chat me up on that. What was that like? What was the conversation like with Vern and why did you stick with him? I stuck with him out of loyalty because I am a terminally loyal person. Um, but that's cool. I'm not trying to work on that, by the way, it, it can be an uncomfortable attribute at times because certain times I've 
uh, invested trust in, in an individual or a situation that I probably shouldn't have, but I did it anyway. And you end up paying the price. But I, I never let that stop me from trying to make loyalty um, high on my list of attributes as an individual. So my fir- the first, you know, by that time, I, you know, I had a relationship with Vern that went beyond a boss. We were friends. We hunted together, you know. Um, so it was the relationship, first and foremost. Part of it was also knowing that if I stepped away, I could have gotten, you know, I went for a long time without a paycheck. You know, we've talked about this in the past. You know, it, it took a major financial toll on me. But I didn't care. I wasn't worried about it. I wasn't fearful of it. I knew I'd come out of it eventually. Um, And I could have come out of it within about a week if I wanted to just by simply taking another job. I had a standing offer to go back to work as a sales manager for the food processor that I worked for. I could have picked up the phone and been working 48 hours later if that's what I really wanted to do. But I didn't want to leave Vern and Greg and the AWA. And I also knew that if I did, I'd never get back in the business again. Right. I just had, and I didn't know why I knew that, but I just had this voice in the back of my head that said, if you want to stay in this business, do not let the financial stress win. Cause it was a fight when you can't really feed your kids. And I was feeding them hot dogs and beans, but that's not really feeding your kids. Not the way we wanted to. Um, when you can't heat your house in the middle of January in Minnesota because you can't afford the propane, um, that's hard. And if I would have let that win, that condition win, I would not be talking to you today. So it was a good decision, but it was a painful one. But I, I didn't mind making it. Let's, and neither uh, did my wife, by the way. I don't want to say that. I'm not sure most people, I'm not sure anybody I know would have a wife, had a wife or has a wife that would have endured what Mrs. B endured um, in her support for what I wanted to do. You have a tryout with uh, the WWF in 1990, and you've told us before that you told Vern directly. How did that conversation go? How did he take it? Um, I didn't tell him. I asked him and I made sure to ask and not tell. And I, I just went into his office. Uh, I think it was, I don't know why I remember it was a Wednesday morning, but I do. And I, I went into his office and said, uh, Vern, c- can I have a couple minutes? Sure. Eric, sit down. We sat down and I, and I just explained to him the situation I was in and I wasn't asking Vern for money. I think he expected me to ask him for money. Right. Uh, alone or something because, you know, cause I had to set up you know, what, why I was going to ask him what I was going to ask him. And I didn't, you know, I didn't even go into the real gory details, but I said, Vern, you know, it's been a while since we've been able to, uh, to get a paycheck and here are some of the things that are going on in my life, Vern. And I just, I want to keep working here, but I, I also have kids to take care of. And I said, I've got an opportunity to go to WWF and audition, but I, I want your permission. I want your blessing. He said, absolutely, Eric, you need to do what you need to do to protect your family. That was it. And I knew if I got the job, there would have been no hard feelings because I was honest and 100% transparent. I didn't nuance anything. Um, 
And I also knew if I didn't get the job, that I'd still have the relationship that I valued so much with Vern for the same exact reasons, because I didn't hide anything and I was completely transparent. So was there ever a time like, uh, you know, my interview with Jim Crockett, he talked about how he spent his whole life defending wrestling to outsiders at school and things like that. Oh, it's real. And all that stuff. Did you ever find yourself in a place where people were slamming Vern and you had to defend him? I mean, cause you are coming into his life at a, a, a point where it's probably easy to pick him apart. If you were a, a naysayer. Yeah. I mean, there were times when I would hear people say things that I knew just weren't really true or accurate about Vern, you know, and it, it, look, my reaction to people in the peripheral wrestling media is well known to anybody that listens to more than five minutes of one of our podcasts. Sure. But, you know, when I would hear, you know, Wade Keller, you know, he started his site, um, I think in 1987, about the same time that I started working for the AWA. So I was aware of Wade Keller back then. And Wade would write things that were, you know, negative towards Vern. And perhaps that's where, <laughs> that's where my contentious relationship with the peripheral media started. But, you know, I would get defensive about that. And there were times, and I'm not saying I would have done it, but there were times when the idea, when I would see Wade in person or see him out in public, because I would at a wrestling event or something, if he came to Rochester, Minnesota, or came to the a live event in Minneapolis, wherever I'd see Wade, I'm going, man, he's a skinny little fuck. I'd love to just knock him the hell out. But I wouldn't act on it, you know. I mean, that was an immature juvenile thought that would enter my brain for a second, and then I would wake up and realize how childish that would be. But, um, but I would be defensive with things like that. There were times when. Now, this is where it got a little more tricky because, you know, for example, Wayne Bloom, Mike Enos. I knew both Wayne and Mike before I went to work for the AWA. We were friends. Now that they were there as talent, their relationship with Vern was much different than my relationship with Vern. Mm, I see. So they would see things and experience things that I never saw and experienced. So when we were out socially together, Right. If we're out having a couple of beers somewhere and we're talking about work, of course, my idea of talking about work is completely different or my world of work is completely different than their world of work. So they had a perspective on Vernon that I didn't have. And I'd hear my friends start burying Vernon. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. And there was some of that, but it never got to the point where it jeopardized the relationship. When you get the news, the AWA shutting down, are you still speaking with Vern? How does that conversation go? And, uh, I mean, it's gotta be like losing an old friend. I mean, this is something that was a big part of your life for a while. And now, well, like a lot of things, it's coming to an end. Yeah. No, no. To answer your question, I stayed in contact. I was, I communicated with Vern. Wow. All the way up until probably 95 or 96, maybe. Not really sure. I, I remember one of the last conversations I had with Vern, <laughs> this will put a time frame on it, was uh, 
Vern Gagne calling me and pitching this guy named Brock Lesnar. Huh. <laughs> so, you know, whatever year that was when, when Brock was graduating, uh, or shortly thereafter, because again, Vern was so close to the university of Minnesota wrestling team. He was really close with the coach there. Uh, can't remember the coach's name. It'll hopefully come back to me shortly, but, um, yeah, the coach at the university of Minnesota wrestling team was a pretty well-known coach and him and Vern were you know very close friends and Vern was always supporting the university of Minnesota wrestling team. So when obviously Brock was a big star there and Vern thought for sure that Brock could be a huge star and Vern called me while I was in Atlanta. Um, God, I don't know. And now I'm dying to know. I hope somebody will listen to this gives me the date, but it was sometime in 95 or 96. Let's start to wrap things up here on our Vern Gagne episode. Uh, I hate to even ask a question like this, but I know people are going to ask, were you owed money from the AWA when they went under? That's a really good question. Not inappropriate at all. I don't know. Yeah, but I don't know how much I did. I never, I never, I never kept track. I didn't. Here's, this is the weird thing about how I operate. It didn't matter to me. Therefore I didn't take, keep track of it. It's like if a friend or a family member borrows money from me, I don't keep track of it. You don't expect, I don't it, expect back, it, really. it. I don't want it back. Yeah. Actually, if I have money in my pocket or if, anything of value, if I have something that somebody can use and they ask to borrow it, I give it to them. It's a gift. It's not a loan. And that's probably bad in some respects, but that's just the way it is. And I felt the same way about the money that I, I, it was my choice, my choice to continue to work for no pay, knowing that there was a good chance I might not ever get paid. That was my choice. Right. So once I reconciled that, I, I couldn't tell you if Vern came back to life today and said, Hey, by the way, kid, thanks for spending six months or a year without it. wasn't a year, six or eight months without, you know, getting paid. I want to stroke you a check. What do I owe you? I, I don't even know. I don't even know. I never knew. I never kept track of it. You know, in these shows, a lot of times we talk about what's a work and what's a shoot. Check out this five-star review that Robert from Vancouver, Washington left us at SaveWithConrad.com. My husband and I worked with Derek for our refine. Derek was incredibly responsive and helped this complicated process easy to manage and understand. The team at First Family could teach a master class on first-rate customer service. We're going to pay our house off in half the time, and we're paying just a little bit more per month at a much better rate. This is a huge win for us. Thanks, Derek, Conrad, and the rest of the First Family gang. If you're not working with Conrad, you're getting worked. Don't get worked. Pay your house off in half the time and do it with roughly the same monthly payment. And by the way, if you've got credit card debt, we can make it go away just like that. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. So what are you waiting for? Let us run the numbers for you at no cost and no obligation. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Come on, get you some of that at savewithconrad.com. Let's, um, you know, I hate to even ask that question, but I mean, 
I hate to make the comparison, but when ECW went out of business, that's what people were talking about. Oh, I was of this amount. I was of that amount. We don't really hear that from the AWA, but it seems like it was a similar circumstance, just dire straits financially. Did you reach out to Vern once you start in WCW, either as an announcer or vice versa? I mean, you said that you had spoken with him in 95, 96, but that was about Lesnar. Were you ever reaching out just to check in or, um, I don't know, look for advice because he'd been in that sort of pressure cooker of professional wrestling and being the top guy before, right? Well, certainly he was, but on a much different scale <clears throat> than WCW and Turner broadcasting. You asked two questions there. You know, did I stay in touch with them? Yeah, I did. You know, I, sometimes I'd call him during the hunting season to see how hunting was in Minnesota, you know, or see if he got a, a new dog or, you know, what he was up to, but just, or just to say hi. Yeah. I do that. You know, I would do that a couple times a year. There were times when Vern would call me. He'd see something that he saw that he liked, or in some cases didn't like. And, uh, geez, Eric, what are you thinking? Jesus, why don't you do that? Jesus, Eric, you know, I'd get some of those phone calls, but they were friendly, you know, kind of older brother, you know, surrogate father kind of conversations. Um, I never reached out to Vern because one of the things that became apparent to me towards the end of my association working with Vern is one of the reasons that Vern ended up the way Vern ended up is because he was very stubborn. He had one way of thinking and there was not a lot of room for alternative ideas or approaches to business, television, wrestling, or otherwise. And I recognized that, you know, I listened to the stories, both Vern and Greg told me about how Vince McMahon, you know, stole their territory, stole their talent, completely pissed all over the AWA. I heard those stories, you know, several times a month on average in one way, shape or form. Now, later on, I realized that it wasn't exactly the way Vernon Gregg told the story. Right. There was another side to that coin, but to your question, yeah, I knew Vern was really stubborn. Vern had a very limited understanding of television in the 90s. He had a very limited understanding of television in the 80s. He understood the wrestling product better than most. Right. But he didn't understand the nature of the television industry at all. And he was stuck in 1970, much like Bill Watts was, much like some people still are that came up in that era. Television had changed dramatically by the 90s, and Vern wasn't willing or able or interested in changing with it. You know, and if you're not, if you're not growing, you're dying as a business, and in my opinion. And Vern, Vern's approach to things wouldn't allow him to grow. He couldn't grow because he stayed locked in 1970. Let's talk a little bit about... Um... Man, I don't know a way to say this, but did Vern have any interest in coming to WCW? I mean, I know you're going to hire Greg, but it feels like you have developed rightly or wrongly, uh, a, re a reputation for having really strong relationships with people that you care about. And that's a good thing, but it does feel like Vern maybe would have had an interest in being involved or at least getting a payday here. Was that ever even briefly discussed or cross your mind at all? 
No, it didn't for the same reasons that we just discussed. I mean, it didn't cross my mind because I just, I knew Vern would be miserable in at Turner. He would be miserable, miserable in WCW that was in Turner. There was a world, a completely different world than Vern had any direct knowledge of. He had, you know, kind of a, he, he had adjacent knowledge, you know, to a lot of the things in the television industry, but he had no direct knowledge or experience in it. And I would have never, I want to say this in the right way. I would have never suggested something knowing that deep down inside it would have caused frustration um, or, or worse in Vern. Why bring somebody into an environment where you know they're not going to be happy? Okay. And that's, that's the environment that Vern would have found himself in. Had I tried to convince him to come to WCW or had Vern convinced me that he could contribute to WCW, I would have been opening the door to a situation that I knew in my heart he would be miserable in eventually. So why do that? Well, I just, you know, when we talked about the wrestling product and you've often said, oh, I needed a finished guy. You didn't think Vern could really check any of those boxes. No, no. And again, because the product had changed, right? I mean, Vern, I think Vern knew wrestling psychology in a real way better than anybody I've met so far in my life, including Vince McMahon by a mile, Vince McMahon by a mile, me, maybe two miles (laughs) or anybody else that you want to name. Vern had a unique sixth sense about psychology and its application inside of the ring. But finishes, that one aspect of the industry had evolved with the television product, had evolved with a different type of wrestling audience. So that finishes, in order to be as good as all of the match that preceded it and the psychology contained therein, the finishes had to be more complex. They had to be layered finishes that Pat Patterson was so famous for. Finishes had, in AWA, finishes basically had one act. It was first act and over when you got to the finish. A Pat Patterson finish has three acts. And, and by virtue of that three-act finish that Patterson, I think, more than anybody made so famous, um, making famous isn't the right word because most people don't realize what they're seeing. They just know they like it, but they don't know why. In 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 Vern's case, he was kind of a, a one-act finish guy, and we needed a three-act finish guy. But that, the, the evolution of the finish wasn't so much about psychology as it was about drama. And that's where I didn't think Vern had a feel for what we needed with regards to finishes. Let's, um, let's talk about the last time you saw Vern in person. Do you remember when that was? It wasn't AWA, right? You saw him when you were in WCW at some point, I'm sure. I saw him when I was in WWE. I saw him at the, uh, WWE hall of fame. Oh yeah. Of course. Back in 05. Yep. Did you get a chance to catch up with him there? Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did he think that the WWE hall of fame was just a $5,000 check and a class ring, or did he think it was pretty cool to be recognized? I, th- I, I, 
I think we didn't talk about that. I didn't ask him that question. Right. But um, my sense was that he was very happy. Good. Very happy to to get the recognition, even though it was coming from Vince. <laughs> but I my sense was he was very very happy and proud. I know I I I'm sure of that. Was he how you remembered him when you saw him yeah. in 05? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, he looked a little older. He was a little older, but he still looked really good. He, he still had his trademark sense of humor and smile. He was upbeat. He was lighthearted and he was Vern, man. He was no different than he was when I first met him in 1973 in many respects. He looked different, but he didn't come off differently. The vibe was exactly the same. I mistakenly said, Oh five, you actually finished up in Oh five. He went in the hall of fame in Oh six, but you don't have to be on active TV to go back to, uh, WrestleMania weekend. No, they, they actually invited me back. WWE invited me back for that one. And, and that's why I was there. What was your favorite Vern Gagne match? Can you recommend one that people go out of their way to see if maybe they only know him as Vern, the promoter. Any match between Vern Gagne and Nick Bockwinkle to me. To me is the bar to which any aspiring talent should try to meet. Forget about trying to exceed it. Not saying that there aren't people out there that are more physically gifted and talented like any sport. You know, athletes in the NFL today are far superior than the athletes of the NFL 50 years ago. Everything's changed. Training's changed, knowledge has changed, techniques have changed, training equipment has changed, everything changes. And the, and the level of performance changes along with it. So th- there are probably mid-card talent somewhere today, all over the place today, that physically have as many or more gifts than Vern did physically. But I challenge anybody in the industry today to try to have the level of understanding of psychology and application of psychology and instinct of psychology that Vern Gagne had. I don't think you'll find that person. What do you think Vern's legacy will be in the business? You know, unfortunately he's never going to be recognized as being as influential as he should. You know, if you, if you catch Hulk Hogan in a private moment, you know, and, and you hear him talk about where Hulk Hogan really came from and don't get me wrong. Hulk Hogan will, will give plenty of credit to Vince McMahon senior for, for creating the name Hulk Hogan, but in terms of creating the character and what made Hulk Hogan famous and helped Hulk Hogan understand psychology to the extent where Hulk Hogan didn't need to do, you know, Frank Gotch kind of wrestling, you know, um, don't give credit to Vern Gagne. Vern Gagne created the Hulk Hogan character. Those are not my words. Those are Hulk Hogan's words. And I think to a degree, the same could be said for Gene Okerlund. The same could be said for Kurt Henning. The same could be said for Rick Root. The same could be said for the Road Warriors to a lesser degree. But to a degree, the same should be said by Jesse, the body Ventura, 
and so many other names that we all recognize as being some of the biggest names in the wrestling business. But guess where they learned their shit? They learned it from Vern. He created that talent. He shared that knowledge. He shared that insight, that instinct, and helped some people develop it within themselves. And I would like Vern, because I think he deserves it, to have more recognition in terms of his real contributions to the industry. But look, you know, we live in a society today where the only news is today's news. Right. And the only history is yesterday's history. And people are, it's easy to forget. But hopefully because of the network, the WWE network, and shows like this, and people like you, every once in a while, it'll get brought up and people will have an opportunity to hear, you know, the rest of the story and understand how Vern, just like Jim Crockett, um, really were in their own way responsible for the, some of the success that we see today. You've told us what his personal legacy is to you. What are your, some of your favorite memories of Vern? Do you have one when you, when, when someone just says Vern Gagne, what do you immediately think of that takes you back to uh, a fun or interesting place? Wow. Oh, give me a second. <laughs> I think the last time I went duck hunting with Vern, I don't remember. It was somewhere up in Northern Minnesota and we stayed at a little cabin. It belonged to a friend of his. And I think it was a very famous surgeon. Might've been Peter Nigerian, Dr. Nigerian's cabin. I don't remember for sure, but it's, it doesn't matter. It was a beautiful log cabin, right? Like 50 feet off the shore of an amazing lake, beautiful place. It was like, if you were a waterfowl hunter and you had somebody paint a, an oil painting of the most idyllic duck hunting setup you could find, this would be it. It really would be. And I had so much fun that weekend. Um, and I just felt like the relationship you know, it started out as the boss. No, it started out as me looking up and admiring and, you know, being in awe of this guy who then later became my boss, who then later became kind of a friend and a boss, and then eventually became almost like a surrogate father to me. And in, not in a big, broad way, but in, in his own way. And that particular weekend was one, I mean, I can picture it in my head. I could, if I had any ability to paint, I could paint that picture because it's so clear in my own head. That's what I remember. You know, that's the one thing. If I had to pick one thing, that's what it would be. And then the rest of it is just a collage of images and moments and memories of him, you know, directing, you know, not just me, but directing talent because I, I loved watching that process. Watching the Vern, because Vern, he struggled sometimes in his communication because he would get so passionate. He knew what he was trying to say and he couldn't find the right words. And sometimes that would just kind of raise the frustration level a little bit. He was getting more frustrated himself than anybody else. But nonetheless, he started getting really frustrated. And then he started slapping himself in the forehead. I remember though, and I laugh, you know, it just brings a smile to my face when I think of them. 
some real quick, uh, things to wrap us up here. What's your overall assessment of Vern as a promoter? Put it in context throughout the seventies, early eighties, one of the best in the country after, you know, the, the territory, um, raid and the change of the business model and Vince McMahon rolling his product out nationally. Um, he didn't adapt and failed to adapt and, and ended up out of business as a result of that. Your assessment of him as a boss. Un, un, unfair for me to give that assessment. Cause in my mind, he was more of a friend than a boss, but I guess he was a great boss. When you feel that strongly about your boss and you're that loyal to him, he's doing something right. What about as a person? Tough, but generous and compassionate. I want to do one last question, but before I do, I want to ask a follow-up. You mentioned earlier, sometimes you get calls from him and and when you're running WCW and he'd say, geez, what, what was something that he was annoyed by or upset by? Do you recall? Oh, he is usually talent driven. Why are you using that guy? Why are you not using this guy? Kind of thing. You know, not so much storyline stuff, but it was more talent driven kind of commentary. When you're in the big chair, did you ever think about something that you learned from Vern and apply it to some decision-making every day? Well, not so much decision-making as it relates to business, but I would often recognize, you know, when I was faced with a challenge or an opportunity or a decision that was uncomfortable because I wasn't as familiar with the subject matter of said decision or opportunity, I would often remember and remind myself because of my experience with Vern, don't be stubborn. Don't, don't pick something you're just because you're necessarily more comfortable with it. Um, that's, that's making a decision on, on not knowing what you don't know. So I would, Oftentimes, you know, when I found myself kind of digging my heels in a little bit, and my back starting to stiffen, um, I would ask myself if it's because I'm unfamiliar, therefore unsure of myself, or because I'm committed to my idea. So I just remind myself not to be stubborn. If you had to gun at your head, play word association, and you can only give one word to describe Vern Gagne, what would it be? powerful. Well, boys and girls, that's going to do it. I'm all out of questions for Eric about Vern Gagne. Eric, is there anything else you'd like to say to Vern? I mean, if, uh, hypothetically, if Spotify's in heaven, he's got his, uh, Raycon earbuds in, what would you like to say to Vern? I, Vern, all I could, all I can say right now, cause I got some stuff to do the rest of the day and I'm running out of time, but I will see you soon. I do expect Vern that you will have scoped out the base, best place in heaven to hunt some birds. And I look forward to that day very, very much. And we'll be back next week talking about nitro from 1997. It's a watch along. Join us right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Hey, listen up. You want 50 grand? That's right. You heard me. You want 50 grand? Go to savewithconrad.com. Don't take my word for it. Just check out Cassidy in Odessa, Florida. Cassidy left us a five-star review and wrote everything that Conrad says in his ads are 100% true. Our experience with Jimmy, Jennifer, and Steve couldn't have been better. We moved into our house a little over a year ago and weren't sure if refinancing was even a worthwhile experience. Come to find out we were able to have a similar monthly payment, a lower interest rate and less years on the loan. Assuming we stay in this house, we'll pay our house off four years earlier and save about $50,000. 
And really think about that. How much is your house payment? You know, to the penny. Now multiply it by 48. That's how much they saved. How much can you save? Find out right now for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but I'm telling you, if you're in a 30 year loan, it's not a matter of if I can save you money. It's a matter of how much. And I really want you to think about what the end of your loan looks like. See, most of us don't do that. We just go ahead and say, well, I can afford the monthly payment. Yeah, you can right now, but can you imagine you at 70 years old? Because if you're 40 years old and you start a new 30 year loan today, you'll be 70 before you pay it off. Don't do that. Get out of debt faster and with cheaper monthly payments. Let's make sure you retire on time by retiring your debt early. Find out how easy it is at SaveWithConrad.com. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? We're licensed in more than 40 states. If I can't save you some cash, I won't waste your time. Let us run the numbers for you right now. Give yourself the peace of mind of knowing you've got the best deal possible for your family. Thanks to my family at First Family Mortgage. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? That's right. You can skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. When you have sports mixed with your pop culture, along with humor and celebrity interviews, your earbuds are enjoying the Rich Eisen Show. You are so obsessed with betting. I don't need to bet. <laughs> you're adamant that you're going to win, and I'm what adamant that you're not like, going to win. But why does money have to be you're, exchanged? You're a realist. Like, he believes it, you believe it. Why is that? Well, that's no fun in that. It's a conversation that you can have, and then Monday, it's just like, I told you so. I mean, that's the verbal currency. There's nothing fun there. Search for the Rich Eisen Show on YouTube or wherever you listen.